You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. So, this is the Yorktown pub. This is the last place that Kathy and Becky were allegedly seen. When you look at this on a map, you can see that it's pretty close, but if you look right here, that's the Colonial Parkway right there. Right close. just on the other side of that bridge? Yeah. So you can easily see how Kathy and Becky may have gone here for dinner or a drink, and then just, they kind of had Very to go close. through the parkway anyways, right? Could they have been stopped? Could they have been personally targeted? And this is a place where someone could see them if they are a couple there, if someone has an issue with that, if someone wants to target them for that, this is where they could have seen them in public and then very easily just have followed them a very short distance to the parkway. I think it's equally likely that someone may have been lying in wait down on the parkway though. So this is the exact road that Kathy and Becky were on. Mm -hmm. and we're going in the same direction because Yorktown's right behind us. And apparently they had a habit of doing this, coming yes. to the partway together, because they wanted that privacy. So there's logical time. conclusions we can draw. Exactly. We know their pattern. We know that this was something that was uh, common for them to do. It wasn't out of the usual for them. They would be familiar with this area. And they would be somewhat comfortable with this area, right? Right. The question is, why would somebody target Kathy and Becky? It can be rage, it can be jealousy, it can be a dispute over anything, financial or otherwise. There are a lot of reasons why one person may target another. Serial killers are drawn to lovers' lanes because they recognize that couples in cars late at night focused on each other are in extremely vulnerable positions. The Honda would have been right about there. So the goal was to get it in the water, and had they gotten that car in the water, no one probably ever would have known what happened to those two poor girls. The way they fought and struggled, and the way their lives were taken, and then the way their bodies were treated afterwards, the way they were pushed back into the car and then tried to set them on fire. 
so much disrespect for them at that time. So you just want to give them a moment of, of respect and recognize who they were and what amazing lives they had ahead of them. listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week I'm rejoined by Bill Thomas, brother of Kathy Thomas and Kristin Dilley, researcher, writer and advocate. We continue to discuss in detail the crime scene behaviour and decisions taken at the crime scene and what it reveals about the perpetrator who murdered Kathy and Becky. And I also bring up the possibility that there were stalking related behaviours prior to the murder. Due to our graphic discussion, listener discretion is advised. Okay, so let's dive back in where we left off last week, talking about other potentially linked offences. I sort of laugh about it, but I also feel very angry. Um, you know, I've spent 27 years working cases of predominantly male violence towards women, and often it's just swept under the carpet. And what we don't talk about are all the things that lead up to these events and women's experiences of the way that we're treated in the world when we just want to be treated with equality, with dignity, with respect. And we have to do everything in spite of, despite this adversity. And what would the world look like if, you know, everything was, the energy was moving for us and people were, were moving with us and trying to help us rather than against. And, and I mean that even in terms of trying to solve the cases, it really shouldn't be this difficult. And is all you're asking for is the cases to be reviewed thoroughly and for the evidence, if it exists, to be examined by those who can competently, capably and safely examine the evidence that is present and has been for 36 years. So why does it become so difficult? You know, as you say, eight young people were brutally murdered, whether we believe it's one person or multiple people, whoever they are are still out there. And that's a huge problem. What are the other cases that haven't been linked where someone's just sort of buried it? You know, and I, I say that because I was sent another book, which um, it's a slight tangent, but I was asked, would I read it? It's called The Forever Witness by Edward Humes, who's winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Now, this is a murder, but it's about the murder of Tanya Van Kulenberg and her boyfriend, Jay Cook. Yes, I know the case. You know the case? I had not heard of the case before, but in 1987, they went off on a trip in their van and they were brutally murdered. And the way that it was dealt with was absolutely abysmal in terms of the local law enforcement and the lack of investigation and so on. And, and it just makes me wonder how many other cases, this is a double homicide case, they were clearly targeted or she was clearly targeted, Tanya. And it just made me think again about double murders. How many other cases are there? Of course, you can say in states, but we know that most perpetrators travel. We know that most people have cars and even more so now, the world is very small. What always strikes me is just the tunnel vision that investigators have and the lack of ability to think 
This could be somebody who is a serial perpetrator. This could well be sexually motivated. And perhaps if I don't know much about either of those two things, I should take advice from someone who does. And it just makes me question how many of these cases are in areas where somebody just hasn't flagged it or the media haven't flagged it or the FBI don't know anything about it. Now, this was in Seattle. So you're talking about, you know, geographically, it's quite different, but it's in a similar time zone um, or time period, I should say. And it just makes me wonder. And I always just throw out the questions, you know, because we don't know how many cases there are. and, And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. These, the four cases that you're going to go on to describe, and we started with Kathy and Becky, well, that's four of them who've been lumped under the Colonial Parkway murders. But how many other cases were there in Virginia, if we just take the state, which is, these are the sorts of things that I always used to do as head of the sexual offences section at New Scotland Yard, as head of the homicide prevention unit. Um, so when people describe me as I do behavioural stuff, I don't just do behavioural stuff, I do investigative analysis and link cases. And, you know, I have a background in not just helping to solve cases, but also thinking about links. How do we get into serial perpetrators and how they operate rather than just thinking with blinkers on, this is just something that's very local. Because if you have something as brutal, and particularly if you've got something that could well be sexually motivated, and I say sexually in inverted commas, what I really mean is power and control motivated. Most violence against women is power and control motivated. And yes, rape may well happen, but the ultimate aim is utter domination. And you can see it manifest sometimes in objects being used, sometimes there's penile penetration, but sometimes it's just a brutal wiping out of someone, an annihilation. And it is about a form of power and control and utterly dominating another person. And what always struck me about Kathy and Becky was that's what I believe the crime was about, was about this power and control dynamic So if I believe that it's about the power and control dynamic, I need to look at other cases where that may well play out, that dynamic. And there aren't many cases that I've come across or that people have brought up to me where two women who are in relationships are targeted in this way in isolated areas. Um, And certainly when they're less than 200 miles apart, 10 years apart on holiday weekends, and then when you start to get into the nuanced detail and you see that so much is similar. There are things that are different too, and that can happen, particularly over time. But just because something is a a, a case, it's a double homicide, that doesn't naturally mean, and as you know, we've already discussed, if it's called the Colonial Parkway murders, these cases, the four, are not even grouped geographically exactly in that area. And I do wonder how many other offences there were. Just listening to Kristen say that this area is a known strip, 23 miles. I don't know whether you know that answer. Do we know how many other, let's take women, first of all, have been targeted in that area specifically, whether it's a near miss or whether it's something that did happen, a rape or a murder? Do we know? Talk about the Colonial Parkway 
adjacent expression that you coined. Yes. So we do have a couple of cases that might potentially be connected. And so I call them the Colonial Parkway adjacent cases. And these are ones that there's a potential linkage through like a business contact or a social contact. So for example, we've got the case of Laurie Ann Powell, who disappeared in Gloucester, Virginia. And uh, she was last seen after a a fight with her boyfriend and never made it home. And uh, her body was found in the James River a couple of months later. Laurie Ann Powell had a nodding relationship with a character, I think is the best way to describe him, right, Bill? Um, A person of interest who has come up a number of different times as we've looked into the Colonial Parkway murders cases. She had a a nodding acquaintance with someone who has come up onto our radar again and again. So could Laurie Ann Powell's case be linked? Maybe. Same with Brian Pettinger. He is a young man who disappeared and was found murdered in the Chuckatuck Creek in a, again, rather suspicious set of circumstances. And he also had the same nodding acquaintance with the same person who has showed up as a person of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. So are there more cases that are linked into the Colonial Parkway murders series, then, you know, maybe the FBI has given a lot of credence and investigation to. I think there could be. And over the years, as Bill and I have talked about the case and have put forth information on social media, we have had so many people come forward and say, hey, I don't know if this is going to help you, but I remember a time on the parkway when I was pulled over, when someone came upon me in a parking area, when someone who was dressed as a ranger approached me. We have had so many of those tips that eventually we kind of stopped being surprised by them because there were so many people coming forward. It it had to have been dozens. It was men, it was women, it was couples, it was all sorts of people. And maybe they couldn't give us all of the information that would have been helpful for an FBI agent to have to investigate a connection. But does there seem to be a habit of people being stopped or flashed over to the side of the road or approached on the Colonial Parkway outside of the cases that took place on the parkway? Yeah, there's a pattern there for sure. But how much the the National Park Service or how much the VSP or the FBI looked into that, I guess that's a question only they can answer. Certainly, we've never found any 100% certain answer to that. But I think there are other cases that could be linked, yes. Interesting. I mean, Laurie Ann Powell does sound very interesting. And I always wonder, you know, having worked these cases, why someone rose something in or rose it out locally. And often it comes down to a misunderstanding if something is not linked. And it might even hang on, well, we thought that he was a paedophile and he targeted children. And actually, oftentimes, sex offenders are about accessibility and opportunity, and they don't always just target children. So oftentimes, when things aren't linked, it comes down to just someone making a unilateral decision. That's alarming for me. It's not as alarming hearing that many people have reported previously that, yes, somebody tried to stop them or there was something that happened that made them feel uncomfortable, but maybe not uncomfortable enough to call it in. You know, we always hear about those cases, but then often there are these near misses. 
that are not seen as being serious. And it's one of those things that I just wish people would call in experts to help make these decisions when you're prioritizing cases. And of course, this is a historical case. So you're constantly dealing with things that may be relevant, may not, but there might not be enough information given the time distance. And we know eyewitness testimony isn't as reliable. But why is it so important? And I know the answer to this, but I want you both to detail it for my listeners. Explain the circumstances about Kathy and Becky being on the parkway and what you believe happened in terms of what we know about the car and the driving license and the glove box, these sorts of things that lead you to believe that it was highly likely that actually someone did approach them and did present themselves as being someone who was legitimately asking them to show ID, but that may well have led them to believe that it was an authority figure. Well, that was something that the FBI mentioned in the very early going. So before the other Colonial Parkway murders had happened, uh, within a few days of Kathy and Becky being killed, two FBI agents from the Boston office came to my parents' house in Lowell, Massachusetts, and they met with my family and they gave my parents and the rest of the family. And I was a grown up by this point. I was 30 years old, so I wasn't a kid. And I remember they got to a point and they said that we believe your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And we're sitting around the dining room table and they said that and I stopped them and I said, we're sorry, we don't don't understand. What's an authority figure? Interestingly, they hemmed and hawed and I could tell they were uncomfortable. Now, I've met a number of FBI agents since and I've gotten to know kind of the training and personality of FBI agents a bit better, but they clearly were uncomfortable and they kind of stammered a little bit before they kicked it back in gear and they started to move forward again. And they said, well, when we say authority figure, by that we mean someone in law enforcement or presenting as such. So right from the very beginning, there was a sense that Kathy and Becky were pulled over along the Colonial Parkway, which as Kristen described is a very pretty, isolated rural location. They believe that someone approached them while they were parked and at least perhaps initially presented as law enforcement. Kathy's purse was open on the floor of the car with her wallet open. And it looked like someone may have approached the vehicle and asked for license and registration. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, Laura, As I understand it, white middle-class people, and this is the victims in the Colonial Parkway murders, if they're approached by someone they believe to be law enforcement, they will comply. They will do what they're asked to do. And they believe that's what happened in this example. Now, remember, Kathy and Becky may have been in a very isolated location. Some of these pull-offs, and there's a good chance that The murder took place at a different location than where Kathy's Honda Civic was ultimately found. So they're being approached after dark and someone comes up on them, likely with headlights, and there's kind of a wall of light there. And actually, Jim Clemente did walk us through potential scenarios about how even a one individual who's well-trained and aggressive 
can assume control of a couple fairly quickly with a, you know, a strong, aggressive approach. And even if people don't immediately figure out that this might not be a cop, or if he is a cop, he's not well-intentioned, it may be too late for them because they're already under control at that point. So there's this strong sense in Kathy and Becky's case, and we see this as a through line in the other Colonial Parkway murders. It appears that these cars are already pulled over. They're stopped. They may be engaging in romantic or sexual behavior and maybe not paying a lot of attention to their surroundings. And then someone comes up on them and they believe that's what happened in this particular example. So Kathy and Becky then ultimately are restrained. And a lot of times people say ropes, but you can't get locked into that. It might not have been rope. They were strangled with rope because a piece of rope was left under my sister's long red hair. It was cut, they think, perhaps during the next unfortunate step, which is after strangling them, likely from behind with a piece of, of nylon rope, he then cut their throats from beyond ear to ear. Kathy was essentially decapitated. So it's, this is extremely violent and very personal and very intimate. You know, when you think about you're not shooting someone from 10 or 20 feet away, you're actually holding them while you're killing them. And then ultimately after the two women are killed, which is outside the Honda Civic, they're then placed in my sister's 1980 Honda Civic, which is a very small car. Kathy's put in the way back in the, what we used to call the way back when we were kids, you know, the hatchback area kind of almost folded up. She's not a tiny woman. She's like five, seven, 145 pounds. She's very athletic. And think about the dead weight of picking up 145 pound person and putting them in the back hatch area. Becky's body is placed on the diagonal in the back seat with her feet extending over towards the passenger side. And she, again, is a very tall, athletic woman. She's not, you know, five feet, 95 pounds or anything like that. Similar size, probably even a little taller than Kathy. So she's placed in the back seat. And then they believe the car is driven by the offender or offenders from one location on the Colonial Parkway to another location on the Colonial Parkway. And then, and this all gets very protracted, you know, time is going by here. This is like multiple steps in terms of the killing of these two young women and the handling of their bodies. They move to this other location where the car is ultimately found. And they make an attempt to set the car on fire with diesel fuel. And then finally failing to ignite the diesel fuel because that type of fuel will not ignite with a match. You have to raise the temperature of diesel fuel. It's not like gasoline that'll go up like that. They ultimately push the car over the edge of an embankment from this grassy parking area and it rolls down the hill and gets caught in underbrush along the York River. It's about what do you think, 15 or 20 feet down, Kristen? Yeah, about that, yeah. And it gets caught in underbrush. It doesn't go into the water, which is clearly the goal, but it does buy the offender or offender's time because unfortunately, the car is kind of out of sight. So it's down in the brush and they believe the car was pushed there likely late Thursday evening or early Friday morning and it's not found until Sunday. So 
two and a half days or so go by between the time that Kathy and Becky disappear and the time that Kathy's car is found on a Sunday afternoon. That's a lot of information, all very important information when thinking about what went on and how it happened. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Taking the first part to begin with, the control issue, that yes, to get control over two women who are both athletic, both confident, both can handle themselves. And these are the things that echo again with me with Lolly and Julie, who were both expert outdoors women, you know, you're talking about people who are comfortable in those environments. The fact that Kathy and Becky may well have been parked up and it's a spot where they could be canoodling and people call it lover's lane. I'm always uncomfortable with that sort of phrase because oftentimes people just find beauty spots, uh, uh, an area that's isolated that they enjoy going to, or it's just off of, you know, they've been to the pub and they pop down here and they just want to sit and talk, listen to music, whatever. And Lover's Lane kind of gives it a different feeling, doesn't it? I don't know if you feel that way about the sort of the phrase Lover's Lane, but I certainly believe that somebody with a gun or a weapon, probably more a gun, would be able to control two women who were caught off guard Particularly if you're caught off guard because you're playing by the rules, you know, when you're being asked to or there's a bright light that's suddenly behind you and you're in a car and maybe you're caught off guard because you are canoodling and then you feel that, oh, it's law enforcement or someone who's, you know, I've got to pay attention to. And the first thing you might do is roll your window down. And if someone's saying they want to see ID... Particularly, you know, Kathy was somebody who went to naval college, disciplinarian, kind of authoritarian. That's important too, because that tells you rule player. That could catch you easily off guard. And if you're in a sitting position, you could realize, as you said, Bill, all too late that it's somebody who has ill intent. And you might not know that initially, particularly if there's a light in a pitch black environment and you're just seeing a flashlight, 
I do know offenders who've controlled victims that way, who've broken into houses and used the flashlight to blind so that when you know, you're being woken up, you can't see a thing because they're intentionally using the torch. And that can be pretty scary as well. They can see you, but you can't see them. But it sounds like Kathy was trying to get her license out and was trying to legitimately show the person. And it does sound like there was a change of location. And as I always say to people, no matter if somebody has a firearm, if they intend to take you to location B, away from A, do everything you can at that point when they are at first trying to control you because once they get you to location B, inevitably it's going to be very bad news and it will be more of an environment where they can control you. But of course, if you're in the dark, if you're in a remote area, if you're sat down, it's much more difficult to be able to run or zigzag and snake your way across an, an open area where you can run the gauntlet of rounds being discharged. But that's just advice to listeners, particularly, you know, in America where firearms are unfortunately something that is quite common versus the UK. But I do think it's probably a very frightening situation for them to be approached by someone that they don't know and they feel like they're unseated, like they're in the wrong and somebody is an authority figure there to regulate their behavior. That catches you off guard straight straight away, doesn't it? Right. There is an interesting development. They think that there is a struggle later because Kathy is quite bruised up, um, more so than Becky. And they think that Kathy may have engaged the attacker. Now, she had martial arts training at the Naval Academy. And as I said, she was extremely strong and athletic, even though I had five inches and probably you know, 40 pounds on her, I actually don't think I would have wanted to have gotten into a full-on fight with Kathy. So it does appear that she actually did engage with their attacker. And so there's a cut on her hand where she, a defensive wound and, uh, and sort of the webbing of her thumb. And uh, she has a lot of cuts and bruises and, and her legs are very banged up. So it does look like she put up a fight. Less so for Becky, but again, you don't know exactly what the scenario is, whether Kathy might have recognized her attacker or realized, as we talked about, that this person's up to no good or they're not a real cop. Some, But something appears to have transpired. Now, the FBI does talk quite a bit about the fact that he took forensic countermeasures by the standards of 1986. They think he wore gloves. They did fingerprint the car. DNA isn't even out of the lab by that point. So the DNA opportunities come along later. But it does appear that he took some cautions to not exchange clues, you know, through his interaction with the two women. They do think he drove the car with the two bodies inside from one location to another. And there's definitely the possibility there could be a second offender here because when you start thinking about the logistics of moving someone's car then how do you get back to your original vehicle Mm -hmm. do you walk or run back to the first location when you're done trying to set the car on fire and pushing it over the embankment these are kind of open issues and i've been to these locations sometimes with 
uh, the FBI and other investigators, and they've walked me through various scenarios. But Mm -hmm. one of the places where you see a split sometimes between very smart, well-informed investigators is one offender or two offenders. The working theory these days seems to be one offender Mm -hmm. um, who has made decisions to move vehicles and stage these crime scenes to some extent and then makes his way back to his original vehicle and drives away. Well, this is certainly something, someone who's thought about it, right? There's clear premeditation, there's things that are brought to the scene and there's things that are taken away. So that tells you that it's premeditated. Somebody knew a little bit about not leaving evidence. And I do believe that they were trying to get the car into the body of water. That was always my sense. But having recently seen some photos and that body of water, that seems to make sense that that individual was trying. And I do believe it's an individual. There's a possibility it's two perpetrators. So there's a a possibility that it is. And you can never completely rule that out. But these sorts of attacks do tend to be more lone individual perpetrated. But you always have to bear in mind there's the 1% and what's motivating it. You know, if, if it's about a legacy of being investigated, and we've talked about this before, Bill, and someone with grudge, revenge type behavior, and actually Kathy was the primary target, then it could be that there were multiple individuals. What strikes me as unusual is that sometimes when you do have double offenders, you tend to get a bit more intelligence from those cases because their allegiances change over time. And you often hear things if it's two perpetrators. And that's, you know, something that I don't know whether you've heard any whisperings around it being a double handed. Most of the consensus now seems to be one offender. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it seems to be the it would be more likely to be a single perpetrator who has thought through what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, although the fire setting is a clumsy attempt. I mean, there are countermeasures, but to not be able to be successful in setting light to the car, you know, was that the primary aim or was it? did it come secondary? Was the plan actually to push the car in the water and then it failed and then they had some diesel and just decided that that was plan B in the moment. And that sounds, that feels more likely to me. Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, You know, especially uh, it's my understanding, like they didn't recover matches, they recovered cigarettes. And it's pretty poor planning if you're like, I think I'm going to set the car on fire to like, I'll just do it with a lit cigarette. It it doesn't seem likely to me. So I think it was very much a, a secondary thought on that part. That sounds like the the ability to be able to switch gears. You know, the stakes are very high in in a case like this, but, you know, rope being brought to the scene, the fact that, and, you know, tying them up, but that sounds quite similar to Lolly and to Julie, but using restraints and taking restraints away. You know, the fact that Kathy did have more defensive injuries, well, it does sound like she fought back. Was she the primary target? And... Therefore, more violence was meted out on her, or was it due to the fact that she fought back? So we always look at compliance and non-compliance. And Bill, we've had this conversation before. It sounds like Kathy would have would have fought back once she realized that something bad was going to happen. 
And perhaps that's why she does have more injuries. But the violence on her was, I mean, almost decapitating her. That is significant. And if there were a firearm, not to use that firearm, well, that could be a deliberate choice. I mean, getting up close and personal, and I I know this is difficult because it's your sister, Bill, but everything that was done was wet work. I mean, it was physical and wet work of what that perpetrator chose to do. And maybe he became, and I do think that it's a he, he became more skilled as he continued on because this wasn't, in my view, somebody who was just going to do one double homicide like this. And when we last talked, we talked much more about, is it an individual who investigated her, who had a grudge-related behaviour? And that's really where I thought energy and time and resource and commitment should be spent. And I was hoping that those lines of inquiry have been bottomed out now, because I know, Bill, you've talked to me before about there being a an individual in particular, and you may not be able to say too much about it, but the FBI were investigating. It was an active investigation, and it may take time. That was something we talked about a lot. But was it grudge-related behaviour? And that seemed a very strong possibility when we first spoke about the case. It still does. But one of my areas of dissatisfaction is that that's still leading theory in this case. We still haven't taken any steps. The FBI tends to be very risk averse. And remember, the FBI is part of the Department of Justice and the DOJ tends to be very risk averse, as we're seeing in other investigations going on in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere as we speak. And those theories about potential involvement of a particular individual um, whom I know a great deal about, um, but I don't know his name, but I, I do know a great deal about this individual. Interestingly, apparently, according to the FBI, he knows a great deal about me. I find that interesting. The FBI has said repeatedly that they believe that this individual knows who I am, listens to podcasts and interviews that we've done, reads articles, follows me on social media. Yeah, is on our social media pages, very likely. Yeah. You know, I've even asked the FBI on more than one occasion, but one time in particular when this first came up, I asked them, have I put myself or my family in danger? Because obviously this individual has literally gotten away with murder for 36 years. And they hesitated again. There was this long hesitation over the phone. And then they said, we don't think so. And of course, I I can't worry about stuff like that. This guy would have to be crazy to come after me. Why not just put up a red flare that says, yes, I was involved in the Colonial Parkway murders, which is why I'm coming after this loudmouth brother of one of the victims. Well, I would switch loudmouth brother and say this incredible advocate who's trying to get justice. I certainly wouldn't say that you were loudmouth, but that was the question I was going to ask you, actually, you know, about risk. And yes, that's an answer that the FBI cannot give conclusively. When an individual is stalked and, you know, where is this, where's the line of stalking, right? to you and or to Kathy, because my question also about Kathy, if we just quickly go back to Kathy and Becky, was I wonder whether 
she was being stalked uh, or whether this individual had seen them in the pub that they'd been to or this was an area that, that they would go to. I just wonder whether Kathy was conscious of anything like that. Well, nothing was ever raised to me. And I've talked to my brother, Jack, about it. He keeps his emotional distance from this case much more than I do. And I'm not implying a criticism there at all. Everyone has to deal with these losses in their own way. But when I've talked to Jack about it, he doesn't recall anything specific like that. But we do believe that she was stalked. And we do believe that her leaving the Navy had something to do with her murder. Now, interestingly, that then opens up a whole nother line of discussion, which is, well, if Kathy Thomas and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are targets, what's the story with the other double homicides in, in the Colonial Parkway murders? And they do vary significantly. First of all, we have a lesbian couple. And then after Kathy and Becky are killed in fall 1986, we have another couple who are not really a couple. They, they met that day. This is Robin Edwards and David Knobling, who are shot to death at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which is about a half an hour away. So we're off the Colonial Parkway. Mm -hmm. They had met that day and had gone out with a group of people uh, that evening. She was ostensibly on a date with David Knobling's cousin. And then they headed home with David as the driver. The other kids were younger. Robin herself was only 14 years old, but apparently they made plans to get together after they had dropped the other people off. So she snuck out of the house, met David, and they ended up heading over to this isolated location, the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which is across the James River, about a four and a half mile long bridge. This, again, isolated location that was known as a interesting place. And as Kristen mentioned, a sometimes a place for low-level drug deals. Yeah. But they went missing and their bodies were found along the water, having been shot to death. David was shot in the shoulder and then finished off with a kill shot to the head. And she was also shot in the head. And this is with a small caliber weapon. So they're not killed in, in any similar way as Kathy and Becky. It's almost exactly a year after the Kathy Thomas Rebecca Dowski murder. Then we flash forward another nine months or so. A couple who are out on a first date, Richard Keith Call, he goes by Keith, and Cassandra Sandy Haley are college students at Christopher Newport University. They're out on a first date and they're seen at a college party and then are heading home to meet a 2 a.m. curfew for Sandy. So they leave the party at 1 or 1.30 a.m. A number of people saw them there that evening at these Christopher Newport apartments in Newport News. They're heading home to Grafton, Virginia, where her parents live. And they're never seen again. They've still never been found. Keith's Toyota Celica is found along the Colonial Parkway, a mile or so from where Kathy's car had been found a year and a half previously. So there's no evidence of violence 
in Keith's Toyota, but there are articles of clothing. And it's a remarkably similar kind of half moon pull off. Yeah. Very similar to the place where Kathy's car was found. But they disappear. So I think it's 30 plus years later. I think it's pretty safe to say they're not going to walk through the door tomorrow. So I think they're homicide victims, but we don't know how they died. And then in incident number four, which now moves us up to Labor Day 1989, another pair, and they are not a couple either in the traditional sense. This is Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer are traveling from their home in Amelia County, Virginia, down to Virginia Beach along Interstate 64, which is more of a substantial interstate highway, two lanes in each direction, divided highway. They go missing, and his Chevrolet Nova is found in a rest stop on the wrong side of the road. There's rest stops on either side, kind of mirror image. If they had stopped at a rest stop, they should have been heading towards Virginia Beach. As the car was found, it was at the opposite rest stop on the other side of the divided highway. And then their bodies are not found for about six weeks. This is now stretching into the fall of 1989. So about six weeks after they first went missing, their bodies are found by hunters and they're in an advanced state of decomposition. They're lying side by side under a blanket, which had been taken from Daniel's car. And animals have gotten at the bodies and so on. So it's kind of a messy crime scene, but the Bodies are in such an advanced state of decomposition, they had a very hard time even determining cause of death. They found some nick marks on her hands, which they think are defensive wounds. Like you hold up your hand to fend off someone with a knife or something like that. But in that example, it appears, but it's guesswork here. And the Smithsonian even got involved, helping them do some of the analysis of what were essentially just clothes and bones but they think that the couple was stabbed so we've got four different incidents no through line no dna or other scientific connection Mm -hmm. and then even the method of killing seems to be varied we have strangulation and throat cutting in the first example gunshots in the second example disappeared couple we don't know in the third example and then in the fourth incident in august into october 1989 we think they were attacked with a knife so even just the basic circumstances vary quite a bit yes you know oftentimes with cases even with when you know that you have a linked case, you can have what would be termed organized aspects and disorganized aspects. And I think oftentimes people tend to think that if you're an organized perpetrator, everything is always organized and it plays out the same way. And it absolutely doesn't. Certainly there are some clumsy attempts with Kathy and Becky's case that where the perpetrator is improvised. In Kathy and, and Becky's case specifically, we can see that there's been thinking on his feet and having to uh, have a plan B when things don't quite work out the way that it's expected. And that happens in lots of cases. 
if you have fantasy-based perpetrators, as in they think about this thing that they're going to do over and over and over and over again, oftentimes the reality of when it happens, it's incredibly different. You don't know how someone's going to react, whether they'll be compliant, non-compliant. You might think that you're going to push the car down the hill, you take the handbrake off and you'll be able to push it. And actually it doesn't play out like that and the car gets stuck. So then you've just got to use what is at your disposal, which I think is what happened with Kathy and Becky. So you can have mixed scenes. What we know about Julie and Lolly was that was premeditated and very clearly thought out behaviours that, that played out to what the perpetrator wanted it to be. You know, and I mean that in the sense that there was clearly premeditation and watching and things again brought to and from the scene. And that's what we know more about Kathy and Becky's case and about Julie and Lolly's really in terms of what happened and how it happened and what's brought to and from the scene. Things like ties, the diesel, gloves, a knife, a weapon of, of some description that does the cutting. Well, that's the same with Lolly and Julie who had, they had neck injuries too. So it's hard to know, isn't it, in the other cases because you haven't really got a huge amount of information in terms of cause of death and how things happened. And there can be, at times, a rush to link things. The opposite of linkage blind is that, well, you've got four double homicides in a space of time, you know, a couple of years, and you've also got a geographic area and you've got vehicles involved. It must be the same individual. And I think oftentimes people think, and I've said this before, by the way, so full disclosure, you know, is it likely you've got multiple serial killers operating in, you know, a 23 mile square radius or a three mile square radius? And I'd often say, well, it's possible, but it's unlikely. But actually, this is a, a larger area that we're talking about here. And it is possible. It is possible. And we look at other cases like the Long Island serial killer. You know, they actually think it's quite possible. They may have had, maybe competing isn't exactly the right word, but they may have had one or more serial killers operating in the same area at roughly the same time. So there's some overlap. One of the areas where you said the improvisational aspect of, of murder may play out here is some of the investigators in walking me through these scenes have said, in incident number two, Robin Edwards and David Nobling, the couple that was shot, they think that, for instance, David may have made a, he may have struggled with his attacker or turned to run because he was shot at a downward angle. So it's possible that he may have figured out what was going on. And although, even though they had a gun on them, he may have made a run for it or he may have tried to defend Robin in some way because he shot through the shoulder initially. And then most likely he shot through the head. One of the things that one of the investigators had said to me was, look, if this is the same offender as Kathy and Becky, his choice may be to use the knife. In other words, that fits his needs, but he needs to establish control over these couples initially and therefore he uses the gun. But in this situation, the one I was just describing, maybe things go south very quickly. David Nobling is a smart young kid. He figures out this is not going to go end well. I'm going to struggle or I'm going to make a break for it. And so even though the gun wouldn't have been the offender's number one choice, he ends up using the gun just to finish them off, if you will. I, I don't say that in a cold way, but things kind of got 
out of control. And so even though he might've preferred another method, he's going to use the gun because the kids made a run for it. And now the situation's completely falling apart. And so he makes decisions to, I'm going to shoot these people and be done with it. Perhaps he's learning as an offender and making adjustments and growing and changing as he goes through this process of killing these young couples. Yes, regaining control. You know, that ultimately is the main goal. If you've got a crime that you're trying to carry out and things go south, then yes, the control factor will play in. And I think in David Nobling and Robin Edwards' case, the car was found or the pickup was found abandoned, wasn't it, with the door open, uh, the windshield wipers and radio on and window rolled down. So that does give you the picture that, yes, one of them made a run for it. And it didn't play out the way the the perpetrator expected it to. And yes, that's what happened. So oftentimes when people try and put themselves in the, the shoes of the perpetrator, well, you try and do that in the cold light of day and you think things through rationally, but individuals are making decisions, split decisions in the blink of an eye. And particularly when it comes to fight or flight, right? Which are the two real mechanisms that men tend to depend on when there's a threat. It does tend, there's fawn and there's cooperate and um, freeze, but all the studies show that men tend to go into the fight or flight dynamic. So that would make sense um, in terms of what happened. And then it becomes about, well, decisions that are made that are much more functional as opposed to what I would call expressive and as a behavioral analyst, you're always looking for what are the functional decisions and what, what's more the expression of who the person is and what they want to do, the signature of what they want to do. And it seems with, with Kathy and Becky, more time was spent. Yes, exactly. A long time. You know, we're talking half an hour, maybe even an hour with the, all of these elaborate steps and potentially moving the car. And this is something Kristen and I have talked about on the podcast. Whoever this offender is, he's very comfortable, at least initially, in that environment on the Colonial Parkway and willing to spend a great deal of time setting up this scenario, killing these young people, moving bodies around, staging vehicles, mm -hmm. things we've learned in the last couple of years, by the way, that are very interesting. And it's, it's funny how these cases can grow and change. Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. That's another really important point. How long did the perpetrator spend at each scene? The longer a perpetrator spends, the riskier it becomes in terms of being caught. This individual, just like in Lolly and Julie's case, felt very comfortable in that environment and spent time at the scene. Now that reveals to me a high level of confidence, i.e. if challenged, he'd have a good reason for being there, and he also enjoys spending time with the victims. In other words, it's not functional. It's not a quick contact kill, and then he leaves. He enjoys being there. He enjoys spending the time. Also, Bill has learned so much more in the last few years about the case. You'll have to tune in next week to find out what's new for him, what's changed, and why. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts.
Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.